Whether it's the career field of your choice or just life in general, almost anyone can use a mentor. A mentor is someone who is where you want to be and can guide you along the way, typically imparting wisdom that has come from years of experience. But mentorship is something that is ethereal to many. A lot of students believe that an internship will equal mentorship, until that is, they end up going on coffee runs, making copies, or doing grunt work all day. Children often grow up with parents, but not always with mentors. Someone to impart wisdom on situations, both big and small, that will get them through their formative years. Many simply don't see the need for a mentor. They assume they'll figure things out on their own and in their own time. In our last episode, Michael Jones talked about the importance of mentorship in his life and how it was part of what led him to create MoGraph Mentor as an alternative to traditional schooling. I wanted to continue this conversation, but if you haven't heard that Michael Jones episode, listen to that first. All right, let's get going. Who have been some of your mentors in your life? I mean, who are the people that you feel have shaped who you are today? The Chris Doe that is right now in this moment? I owe a lot of my success in the way that I think to a lot of different people. So I'm going to do my best to answer that question and contain it to five people. Although this list can go on and on because I feel like everybody that shared something with me who have imparted some small part of wisdom that I use today, I consider them a mentor. I also consider myself a life learner. And, and this is one of the great joys of my life that I get to meet and talk to people and I get to learn something from them, from all walks of life, from all levels of success. So the first one, I think it's gonna be obvious, is my dad. And I have to say, as a person growing up in America, being first generation, I didn't always have this perspective. And I thought my dad came from the old country and brought old traditional ideas and values and all I wanted to be was an American kid, just like a normal American kid. And so we did things differently. We ate different foods. We spoke differently. We had different manners and mannerisms. And so it was kind of hard for me to hear, especially in my teenage years, to hear the advice and the, the, the chunks of wisdom that my dad would give. Now, some context. My dad is the oldest son of seven and eight, seven or eight brothers and sisters because I'm not counting as we have a very big family. And I think he, um, in a way, because he lost his father when he was still a teenager, he had to grow up really fast. And I think from the accounts that my uncles tell me, it changed him. Like he was a one, one kind of person and then their father died and he became a whole different kind of person. So he was always this very stoic, reserved person. And he would always say, you know, if there's like two bowls of rice, you guys eat first he automatically assumed that role of parent. And I think it shut him down in a lot of ways emotionally because he had to do the right thing. And I have a lot of respect for my father now, realizing the kinds of decisions he had to make and the things, the sacrifices he was willing to make. And I hear a lot about how people grow up and their father is the most important person in the family. It's the patriarch. Like you don't make noise when dad's sleeping and dad gets the big, the best piece of steak. That's his chair. My dad was the complete opposite. He was very selfless. He always told us, if there's anything that you want, you just ask me and I'll give it to you. 
It doesn't matter how I'm going to be able to do that, but I'll find a way. And because he did that, it made us very self-conscious, like we should never ask dad for anything. My dad never drove a fancy car. And I remember one time uh, I was a couple years into the business and I was buying another car and I wanted to gift my dad my car. And it was a, it was a really good car. It was a Mercedes CLK 430. It's a beautiful car. And I gave it to my dad and my dad was happy, but then he was also sad in a way. And just to give you guys a clear picture of who my dad is, he, he was sad in that he never drove a luxury car in his life and he didn't want what came with that. That means uh, that meant to him that he would have to care after, take care of the car, wash it, vacuum it, and take it to an expensive European mechanic. And he drove it for a while, but he didn't drive it often. So it got to a point in which he decided just to sell it to his sister-in-law. And, you know, somebody's typical reaction would be like, dude, you gave your dad a car, and then he, he sold it to somebody else. Like, that's kind of messed up. But I'm of that perspective. Like, when you give somebody something, you give it freely without strings attached. Otherwise, you shouldn't give it to them at all. And some of the lessons that he shared with me throughout uh, our time growing up, you know, as a teenager was to always obey the golden rule. The golden rule was to treat others the way you wanted to be treated. And that's always given me this lens to look at things where maybe to a fault even, I try to consider the other person's point of view. So if it's an employee or a client or something like that, I try to consider it from their point of view almost more so than my own. So if we had a dispute, I kind of looked at it like, okay, why do they think they're right? And why are they upset? And this has helped me, I think, in terms of building empathy for my clients, for my kids, for my wife. And it's, it's served me really well as a kind of a business principle. I always want to try to do what's fair. So I think my dad, I mean, I, I can go on and on about the lessons I learned from my dad, but my dad has been a big influence, a big mentor of mine. Uh, he taught me about hard work, about sacrifice, delayed gratification. One of the lessons that he taught me when we were growing up was like, he says, your life is long. You have a lot of time to play. But if you play when you're young, it has a dramatic impact on the kind of quality of life you'll have when you're grown up. So the time to sacrifice is now to put education as your utmost priority and do everything you can to excel in school because school will be your ticket into a better life. And I couldn't hear it. You know, I'm a teenager. I'm going to school. I'm doing fine. And I don't ever really apply myself. I, I didn't find my calling at that point. I was doing the work just to get by. And I know he was disappointed in me because, you know, he didn't see me sitting there reading books and, and doing math or whatever you're supposed to do. I was goofing off, hanging out with my friends, playing volleyball or skateboarding or whatever it was. And somewhere between community college and going to art center, my whole perspective on that changed. I became super laser focused and now I could hear his voice in my head even though I wasn't living with him anymore. And that's a thing that I carry to, with me to this day. He also taught me not to waste. Not to waste, like, don't... Uh, one of the things that we always do is if we went to a buffet or if it was like a spread of food, um, he would always say, get whatever you want to eat. 
Help yourself to as many rounds of food as you want. But never put more food on your plate than you can eat. And you can apply that to just about anything. So that's my dad. Uh, and, and this is not done in any particular order. I just, I'm just thinking here about the five most influential mentors in my life. The next would be Keir McLaren. He's my business coach. And if you guys have watched the show before, if you listen to some of the podcasts, you know who Keir McLaren, he is no stranger to you. Uh, Keir is uh, the dad that you would want to have if you were to go into business. And I worked with Keir for over 10 years. And he taught me all that I needed to know about business, about how to communicate. And he called me on a lot of stuff. Now, the thing that's unique about Keir is that he works with creative clients, not necessarily all in the same industry, but creative clients. So I knew that he could understand the point of view that I was coming from. I also knew that he had the business acumen and the clarity of thinking to call me out on stuff or to introduce radical new ideas. He's a prolific reader, and so he'd be constantly sending me articles from the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, uh, LA Times, whatever, and he would just put stuff in front of me, not necessarily saying that this is what you should do, but making sure I was aware of the world around me. And if he saw anything that was relevant or something I can use to my advantage, he would share it. And he taught me a lot of very valuable business lessons. He taught me how to ask the clients for what I want. And that sounds like a really strange idea that somebody has to teach you to ask you, um, somebody has to teach you to be able to ask for what you want. Before then, we just kind of beat around the bush. If you ever had a bunch of creatives in a room, completely dependent on whether the client would say yes or no, where the clear power dynamic was in the client's corner, not in the creative's corner, we're always tiptoeing, kowtowing about trying to make them feel like we're really interested in the project without offending anybody. And it gave us, it put us in an awkwardly weak position where we didn't have any clarity on what it is they wanted, how they were going to make the decision. So a lot of people will ask, like, Chris, I love the way you speak, the way you communicate, so clear, so concise. How did you get that? A lot of that comes from Kier. And he would run scenarios by me all the time. If I was having an issue with an employee that was not kind of meeting the standard, if you will, how I could learn to talk to them, how I would talk to somebody if I wanted to hire them, but uh, we, we couldn't, we weren't at terms yet in terms of the finances, like they wanted more money than I could afford. Or if somebody wanted to, wanted to get a raise from me, how I could respond to them and feel okay about saying no and how that also left room for them to fulfill certain requirements to actually earn the raise that they wanted. He also taught me how to talk to artists and designers in terms of giving them permission to disagree. And that's a crazy idea too because he's like, you you underestimate the power of being the boss. So when you come up to your subordinates, your employees, your staff, when you say, you know, I need three comps and I need it by Tuesday, I'll see you later. Uh, You can even say, can you do that? And of course, he's like, they're going to say yes. You're the boss. You said it. We're going to do it. But the the truth comes, uh, well, reality hits when Tuesday rolls around and they've only done half the work. And I go away frustrated. I'm like, here, I can't believe it. They couldn't do this. He says, because you did not give them permission to say no to you. So the simple thing he taught me was to say, here's what I'd like to get done. Here's when I'd like to get it done by. 
Does that sound reasonable to you? Because if you can't do that, I am okay with hearing that you can't. We can figure out a way to solve it together. But basically, if you give people permission to say no, then that empowers them and then you can come to a fair and clear understanding. That also gives them some ownership over their own schedule and their life. Because it's kind of unfair for a boss to come in on a Friday night at 5 or 6 p.m. and say, you know, I got four proposals due on Monday. I need you to work through this and walk out the door. And that person is going to walk away feeling sad, feeling powerless in that situation. So Keir McLaren, my business coach, has been a big mentor of mine. Somebody else that I learned a lot from is my uh, therapist, my family therapist. I, her, her name is Joan Lightfoot, and she was recommended to me by Keir. And I was at this place where I was thinking, you know, I'd like my family dynamic to be as strong as it can be. I'm not saying that we're on some kind of rocky road here, but I'm a, like I said, I'm a life learner. I want to learn. So I didn't meet with Joan that often, probably for a period of three to four months. Um, You know, whenever I could fit in my schedule, I'd meet with her for an hour. And I learned so much about how to talk to people. Like the things that she taught me on how to talk to my children, how to manage uh, my own expectations with my wife. She taught me about myself. She said, you know, Chris, you're what I would call like a runner, a sprinter. When new ideas come, you just run towards it. You're fearless, and that's really great, and that's what makes you great at running a business. Your wife, however, is not a sprinter. She's more of a walk walker or jogger, and the problem is there's this gap. So as you're sprinting ahead, you look back and go, why are you so slow? And she's looking at you and saying, why are you leaving me behind? So she said it's very important in a lot of things for you to slow down and meet in the middle. She could walk a little faster, and you could walk a little slower. And you'll find harmony and rhythm so you're doing things together and that's really important. And she taught me some Jedi mind tricks too about how to deal with my kids. And at that time my son was, I think he was like five or six years old. And he was just having the worst tantrums. We're talking about screaming, yelling for half an hour, an hour. You know, throwing stuff, saying I don't love you. Saying very hurtful things. And crying just like, just, you know, you imagine like one of those wind up toys. And he's like all bundled up so tight, he's ready to explode. Now, I used to feel like that when I was a kid, but not at the beginning of something. You know, like if my mom took me out shopping with her, she would take me from store to store for hours with nothing for me to do. And it would just, that frustration would build up. So at the end of the day, I was like him. And maybe you guys have been there too. But here's the thing. This is how he was like on go. I would say, hey, everybody, we're going to go out to eat. He's like, I don't want to go. I said, well, you have two choices. You can go with us or you can stay home by yourself. Now, he doesn't know this, but obviously I wouldn't have left him home. He was, you know, home alone. And he's like, no, I want mom to stay home. And I'm like, well, that's not one of your two choices. You either go with us or you stay home by yourself because we're all leaving. And he's like, no. And he would grab onto her leg. He's like, you can't leave. And it was like explosion. And we live in a very quiet neighborhood, right? Something that all my neighbors know what's going on. He's crying. He's yelling. And I was thinking, my God, children were put on the planet to test their will, the will of their parents. And I was thinking, I always took pride in thinking that I'm going to be a great father one day. And then in moments like that, I was thinking, I'm going to be a horrible father. And this is not what I signed up for. 
And these things would go on for hours. And there was no resolution. It was whose wheel was going to break first, his or mine. And I learned through all these kind of parenting workshops and things that I picked up from Joan that you want your child to have a strong will. That that's actually a good thing. You do not want to break their will. Because that same willpower is going to be the thing that keeps them away from bad influences later on in life. So when friends say, let's go rob a bank, let's steal that car, or let's do these drugs, or let's do X, Y, and Z. It's their strength and their willpower that's going to save them from doing what others tell them to do. So she did teach me some really great tricks, and they're wonderful. So on a separate episode when we're talking about parenting skills, uh, we will do that. But this is the business of design, not the business of parenting (laughs) or the parenting of design. So I'll stay away from that. So that was Joan, my therapist. Next up is uh, Dr. Holtzman. Dr. Holtzman is the faculty development person at Art Center. So the way that you can think of him is he's the teacher who teaches the teachers how to teach. Pedagogy stuff, like Ph.D., Super brainiac kind of guy, but super cool too. And he's been in the office before, mostly because I went to a couple of workshops he put on at Art Center. It's one of the things that they provide for for the teachers there. And then watched how he talks about work and structuring your class. And these are frameworks on how to talk about things in a very clear and objective way. His whole thing was about how to study and to find teaching methods that are the 21st century style, like Socratic, the Socratic approach, where you're, you're, you're leading the discussion with questions and letting the students find the answer. And this is a radically different way of teaching than the way that I was taught. So in the old guard, you'd walk into your room, put up your work, and brace for impact. You really would. I mean, if you had a belt or a stick you could chew on or bite, you would get ready for it. And the older the teacher, the more old school the rougher the crit would come and they would destroy you now i saw some of that but there were legends of teachers doing horrible things horrible things like literally walking up to the crit rail with a trash can and just like just one at a time knocking your work into trash and not even talking about it like garbage (laughs) garbage garbage this is art school i know there are films that kind of depict this life and they, they kind of romanticize it in a way It was real. Teachers would take the work and crumple it up and throw it at you and say, you insult me with this work. They took it personally. So this is a stark contrast where it's like, well, what do you want to say about this piece? And do you think it says that? Leading you with a lot of questions. And why would you say that? So a lot of why questions to try to get you to understand um, where you want to take your piece. So that was Dr. Holtzman, and we, we brought him into the office because I, I thought he did such a great job. I wanted the guys here, the creative directors here, like Matt and Greg, to see what he does to grow from that experience as well. So he taught us about this idea of a shared conceptual framework, that we both have different ideas about what we want. Sometimes we lack the language or the precision to describe what we want, so we have to kind of build something together. His whole thing was when, when you give an assignment, whether the assignment is given to you or you're giving one, we want to make sure that the parameters of the project are clearly defined for both parties to understand. And he says when there are too many parameters or they're not enough, it becomes too restrictive or it becomes too open. 
And Matthew is a very good student, so he's already created a video about this. Uh, and this is what his pitch kit is about, teaching people how to engage with a client to understand what the parameters are, what the mandates are, the things that you have to do, the immutable things that you sometimes think are negotiable. Designers make this mistake all the time. And last up, it's it's not one teacher but I'm just or mentor, I'm going to say it like this. These are what I would consider my virtual mentors. And to use a Michael Bay root term, these are mentors I've hijacked. People I've never met, um, you know, in, except for with one exception, I've never spoken to. And they're my mentors through reading their books, watching their videos, or any other form that I can attain this information from. The beauty of the new learning is that you can watch them over and over and over again. And I'm a visual learner. That means I need to see the words on a page. And so when I'm hearing a lecture, it doesn't all sink in. So that's the beauty. I get to play it over and over again. So I'm going to give you a list of uh, who my top three or four people are as virtual mentors. Right at the top of the list, and you guys have already been introduced to him at this point, is Blair Ends. And if you haven't listened to that episode, that's a couple episodes ago, check that out. And then there's Simon Sinek, who I did have the pleasure of seeing him speak live. He's a great communicator, speaks with a lot of passion and heart, and he's a really funny guy too. He wrote the book Start With Why. And he also gave, I think, a TED Talk and a couple other other talks. And I, I love the way he thinks, and I've been able to hijack his concepts into branding. Next up is like Marty Neumeier. Marty Neumeier, I think, taught me a way of understanding branding that has, is so clear and so concise. He's an incredible designer, writer, thinker. And last but not least is Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn is, I think, the godfather of all these self-help gurus in the business space. He's, he's described as a business philosopher. So when you uh, see somebody out there right now that's doing really well, that's teaching you how to be more confident or, or understanding business concepts, chances are they'll point to Jim as a mentor or as a big influence. Anybody from Tony Robbins and Darren Hardy, who wrote the book, The Compound Effect, they both cite him as an influence and as a mentor. That's my five. One thing one thing that I would like to say before before I move on to to another topic is I I really appreciate the way that you appreciate therapy because I think that therapy is an unbelievable aid to people and people do not take advantage of it enough. The way that you were talking about it was that you are a learner and that you are constantly wanting to like learn how to make your life better. You know, that's part of what you're wanting to learn. And I think that therapy is an amazing way to do that. You know, people have this idea that we're just given a basic set of rules and we have to figure everything else out for ourselves. But there is a back door to making your life a lot better. And that is spending time with some of these professionals who can give you a better idea of like who you are and where your place is in different dynamics, you know, how to make the best of those dynamics and basically just how to get the most out of your life. Therapy is just something that I am always like, it's, it's a soapbox for me because it changed my life 
several years ago, I started going to a therapist and it saved my relationship between me and my dad. It changed the trajectory of my life. It's definitely done a lot of good for me and everybody that I know who's ever done it. So I'm I'm just appreciative, I guess, to hear that you're a fan of that. I am. And there's a stigma that used to be attached, and I don't know if it still is, especially around areas that are away from the coast. And, and you know, people will have a good laugh while you're seeing a therapist, you know, you know head, shrink head shrink, you know, something's wrong with you. And I think that's one way to look at it, and that's the stigma. I kind of look at it like this, and, and Darren Hardy, who I just mentioned, talks about this. He says that he's been able to interview some of the most successful people on the planet, entrepreneurs, from Oprah Winfrey to Richard Bramson. And he says they, the most successful, top-performing, top-earning people are life learners, and they have a host of a who's-who list of mentors and coaches. They invest a lot in their own personal development. And when I went to see Joan, and she talked to me about this, my, my therapist, Joan said, you know, no parent in the world is the perfect parent. I mean, that's not to disparage anybody's parents. It's just that they're busy. They're busy growing and learning themselves. Some of them haven't figured out the, their own lives. And some of them are busy with their career. And as much as they love you and care for you, it's not their profession to take care of you. And they're not trained to. And she said that that's why... She's like, even for her, and she's a family therapist, she's like, I was not the perfect parent to my own children because I was busy with my career. I was busy with all these other things. So one of the remarkable things that I got from going there, especially when I went with my wife, was we would go together and it felt like the strangest, most intimate date that we've ever been on. (laughs) And the reason why is we would sit there on the couch and we would, for the first time, really say whatever it is we were thinking but we knew that we're doing it in a safe place that we wouldn't tear each other apart and be left with the fragments afterwards. And that was critical. So if something came up, I would just put it in a box and wait. We would go into therapy and I would say, you know, two weeks ago this happened and I want to understand that better and can you give me some tools? And she gave me lots of tools. I'll give you an example. And this happens a lot, I think. Hopefully, I'm getting smarter about this kind of stuff. So my wife had said to me, Honey, um, can you help me uh, clean up my desktop? I have to go. I'm meeting some friends. And the whole computer thing, it's not working right. I said, Sure. I'll take care of it. So she leaves. And I start working on her desktop. I see that it's littered with files everywhere. So I started organizing things in folders that made sense. I threw away duplicates, you know. I organized everything so it was super tidy. I up- optimized the computer, everything I could do to make it work really well. So she comes home, and I was expecting a, a giant hug, a big kiss, like, thanks for doing this. I had a good time, and you took care of all this. You're the best. And I got the opposite reaction. She was furious. She said, all I needed you to do was fix this one password issue And what you did was you put all my files in one place. I don't know where anything is. Why would you do that? And I was upset because I spent this time making it right. And she was so angry. And I was like indignant about it. I was like, you know what? I didn't say this, but like screw you then or whatever. That's what my attitude was. I just walked away. I'm like, I'm so angry right now. Why did I even bother? So I talked to Joan and Joan's like, why did you even do that? And that stopped me right in my tracks. I'm like, isn't that what 
a husband is supposed to do, a caring person is supposed to do for their loved ones to help them do things that they can't do? She said, yeah, but it sounds to me like you didn't have very clear directions and you went off half-cocked. When she said this, she meant something else. And you automatically assumed it was this. You gave her what you wanted. You didn't give her what she wanted. So it's very important that when you're trying to be helpful to somebody, that what you're doing is being perceived as helpful. I was like, oh my God, here comes a mind bomb. It's like burrowing into my brain now. Right? I was like, isn't that the same? It's not the same. So I thought I was being helpful, but what I was doing was being perceived as unhelpful, destructive even. And so I said, well, what do I do? I want to I be helpful to my wife. I want to be a loving husband. This session obviously was not done with the two of us together. It was just me. And she said, well, before you go do something, this is what you should say. It's like, honey, I would love to help you. But I need some more instruction. I need some clarity before I can. If now's not a good time, I'll wait for you to come back. Because I want to make sure what I'm doing is being perceived as helpful. That's what she told me to say. And I'm a good student. So I go home and I'm like, I'm just like rubbing my hands together. Oh boy, I can't wait for my wife to ask me to do something. I'm going to lay this on her and see how it goes. So again, my wife gives me some abstract instruction, shorthand for whatever she thinks she wants. And then I say it. And she looks at me like, what are you doing? said, (laughs) "Uh, nothing. And she's like, you went to see Joan and you're reading some script off in your mind, aren't you? I can tell. I'm like, well, I'm a good student. I don't want to replace those words with words that are imprecise. I'm using the exact same words she taught me. And she's like, I don't like it. I'm like, okay. But getting back to the task, how could I be helpful and be perceived as being helpful? She's like, and that was the end of that. (laughs) But I've learned now, right? So today, I mean, I'm not a stupid kid, you know? Today, she's like, you know, can you go out and buy me the iPad for my mom, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, sure. Uh, in order for me to do that, you need to specify the model. To, she's like rattling stuff off to me. I'm like, I, I can't do that. Why don't you screen capture exactly what you want? Specify the heart, everything that you want and text it to me. And at first she's like, ah. she's like, okay, I'll text it to you. No problem. Text it to me. I went to the Apple store today. I picked it up and I texted her back. I got what you wanted to the T, to the T. And now I'm being helpful. Before, I was being a jerk. Those are words that she used. But she said it a little bit with a little more zest than that. You're a jerk. So that's what uh, Joan taught me. hey yo, John Roth here from the future. I'm here to tell you guys about the pro membership. A lot of you have been asking about how you can engage with us and where you can go to meet like-minded individuals. Well, I'm here to tell you how. For $75 a month with the Pro Membership, you can join Chris Doe's collective of creative entrepreneurs, which includes everyone from designers to strategists to writers and more from all over the world. Also included is over 40 hours of exclusive videos on a variety of topics, from the business of design to project management, and access to two pro calls a month, where you can have your questions answered by Chris live. All that and more in your pro membership for just $75 a month. Not afraid of commitment? Sign up for a year and save $150. The pro membership. 
exclusively in the online store. Go to thefuture.com slash shop for more. Okay, so we've we've talked about who your mentors have been, or some of your mentors have been, but you've been a mentor for decades now. I mean, you've you've been a teacher, you've owned your own business, brought on people and mentored them through the positions that they're in now. I mean, Matthew and Greg, you've mentored into creative director positions. What have been some of your experiences being a mentor? What is that like to have people under your care and to take them to the places that they need to go? I I, I love to help people. I really do. And it gets me into trouble. It gets me into trouble in ways that I don't manage my own time. So I'm sacrificing my own personal time time sleeping, time spending with my children, time reading, time doing activities like playing video games or watching TV. I, I, I get into this place where I receive great joy helping people. And I think that's a natural human instinct. I'm not trying to say it like, oh, look at me. Look how cool and different I am. I think that's a normal thing. And when I'm working with somebody where I can impart something on them, whether it's a keyboard shortcut, that's super simple a way of working or a way of asking questions or a way of seeing. Like if they're struggling, say, for example, if one of the guys is working on a storyboard and they just hit a brick wall, they've been in it too deep. Somebody with fresh eyes comes in and there's that expression, right? But it really is because I have no attachment to any of the parameters, none of the frames, none of the work that's been put in. And I can say, you know, this one frame is killing you. I think you need to get rid of it. And might I suggest thinking about this, this, or that. And I get into very specific things. And that's when they have to deal with their own attachment and let go of that frame because whole teams have been working on that one thing. And with the idea that was really good at the beginning, but the idea had changed so much, they're still trying to force that idea back in. So I just help them with clarity and, and, and seeing them grow, seeing them become the people they are, because I've known both Greg and Matthew for a really long time now, first as students, then as freelancers, then now we're kind of like family here to see them grow and be able to take projects and if there's an issue they just come to me and say look I'm stuck on this one thing it could be a client issue it could be a freelancer issue or a creative issue I love doing that I love to do that for them and I'm working with a constant influx of new people that are coming in and I'm working with them and hopefully sharing all the things that I know and have learned over the years and in doing that, uh, for for somebody who might be wanting to take on the mantle of being a mentor, what are some of the resources that you found invaluable in getting to that place? If you want to be a mentor, yeah. If someone if someone who's listening to this is like, I, I would love to become a mentor for somebody. Are, has there has there been any resources? I know that mentoring is oftentimes a very specific thing, you know, depending on what you're mentoring. But have there been any like general mentoring resources that you have um, had come through your life that have helped you? That's a really good question. The the mentors that I've pursued in my life have been very visible and public in terms of their thoughts, their process. And so they typically write books, they do lectures, and so they're very visible. So if this person is already in that space, I'm going to imagine they don't have a lot of issues with people approaching them. Um, so let's take that off the table. 
if you're a New York Times bestselling author, then you don't need this, obviously, because you got people up the wazoo coming up to you, right? So the first thing I would say is let's let's build a bridge to that. Don't don't hoard the information. Give it out freely. Give it out without strings and give it out openly. Uh, I'm, I'm reading this book called Show Your Work by Austin Kleon, I think. And he talks about uh, people hoard information. You need to like let it go. It makes you more powerful. Give away the secret sauce, if you will. He says, uh, chefs have learned this already. They write cookbooks. There are recipes. He's saying, write the recipe and give it away. So how can you do this? If you're a writer, I would go on to Medium or LinkedIn and start writing. Share your ideas. If writing is not your thing, let's say um, you're a designer, go and speak. Speak at the schools that are around you. It's easy to call up uh, anybody in that school and say, look, I do X, Y, and Z. I've been doing it for a while. If you guys have any upcoming events, I'd love to participate. And if you're in the design space, uh, you would work with AIGA. They do speaking engagements all the time. And it's about helping and nurturing the community. And so that's the very natural way to do that. And that takes the a lot of the work off of you, and you just put that stuff out there. I think the, the biggest struggle that people have is they often don't think that they're ready. That What do I have to contribute to somebody else? Like, who am I to say, like, I'm going to teach or lecture or mentor? And I think this is where we often take, uh, we don't really take a great account of the things that we know that other people don't know. Because you're not going to tell me uh, how to breathe or how to stand up because it's so natural to you. You wouldn't talk to me about how to drive because for the most part, everybody on the road theoretically knows how to drive. And all these other things that come so natural to you, whether it's playing guitar or designing a logo, well, you don't think it's special. And this is where you, ha- you need to realize what you do is unique if you've been doing it for some time, if you've had success. So that gets into, you can create a course on Skillshare or any one of those other platforms. There's tons of them out there. And if you're like us, you can record a video and you can use it. Uh, you can use your iPhone or, or smartphone to, to record video and publish and share what you know and just give it away. I think society moves forward when people are generous with what they know and that's how we advance. What are the advantages of being a mentor? I'm going to try to attack that question from a number of angles. The first thing I could say is this, is that the best way to learn something is to teach it. That's how you know if you know something or not. There was a great experiment uh, that was done on YouTube. I say great in the sense that it, it, it opened my eyes to a lot of things. It says, knowing something is not understanding. Like You know how to ride a bike, but you don't understand the mechanics of it. So the experiment was that they flipped the controls of the steering wheel so that if you turn left, the wheel would go right. And it took this guy like almost a year to learn how to ride the bicycle. And once he got it, he got it. But when he went on to a regular bicycle again, he was like wobbling all over the streets again. So just because you know something doesn't mean you understand it. So you know how to design. You know how to edit. You know how to make films. But you actually might not understand anything about it. So you want to test yourself, go teach. So the first thing you have to do is you have to break down what happens on an autonomic level in your mind, like something that happens without thought. And you have to break it down to small pieces. You have to create that recipe. So this is how you know if somebody really knows how to cook, right? 
So a lot of uh, people in our culture don't cook with recipes and cookbooks. They just don't believe in it. So then if they, this is like my mom. My mom doesn't do that. She cooks by feel and she's been doing it for so long that it's easy for her. Except for one time when I was going away to college, I said, Mom, I love that dish that you made and this one and that one. Can you write a recipe for me? She goes, okay, let me think about this. And she's also now paring it down for like a single serving kind of thing. So she's doing a lot of things. And she wrote these cards and she gave it to me. And God bless her. I was able to make the five dishes that she told me how to do. And she did know how to do it. So if you really want to master something, if you really, really are that confident, go teach it and see, see what happens. The other thing that's going to happen is when you're in front of people who haven't done things, like the things that you've been doing, they're going to ask you lots of questions like, why did you say this? Why do you believe that? I don't understand. And that will drive your understanding of the problem. Now, speaking from a personal experience, I hit some kind of uh, burnout phase a few years into the company. And I started to question if I had what it takes to be in this industry for the long haul. The industry being the motion design industry, which goes through trends and cycles and technology really fast. And I thought, you know what? I'm starting to feel really old only three or four years in. I need to take a break. And I was questioning myself if I could still compete with the people I hired to work for me. If I had ideas that were relevant or I'm just this old guy hanging on to old tricks. And it wasn't until I actually went to teach, and that semester I went to teach at Otis, that I rediscovered something that I didn't know existed, that I know a lot of stuff. And through that process, I regained my mojo. And I, was, I came back confident, and, and I've been going strong ever since. There's that part of it, and there's one other part. I teach sequential design storyboarding, essentially. But not, necess- not the, the technical how to draw something, how to render. I don't teach that. I'm talking about how to design shots to tell your story, how to sequence them together so it flows, and where to change things to create greater emotional impact with the audience. How to tell stories with images. I teach that. Now, I'm working with anywhere between, on a small class, six students to as many as 20 students, depending on the semester. And we're going through this for 14 weeks at a time. Just going through it three semesters a year, just grinding, grinding, grinding. Now, a lot of this stuff that I've learned is theoretical because I've not directed that many commercials. I've not drawn that many storyboards. And so what I did was I wanted to make sure I knew what I was talking about. So I would look up terms. I would research, watch videos. So I was educating myself to make sure that I wasn't making stuff up or that had the proper backup to the theories that I had. So that drove deeper understanding for me. And then a couple years ago, I would say about four years ago, um, I was asked to direct a documentary film, something I've never done before. Now to that point, I think I probably have directed maybe a half dozen to, I don't know, like a dozen commercials. Maybe, maybe more than that, actually, but something like that. It wasn't in the hundreds. It was in the tens. And somebody had asked me to direct a film. I'm like, wow, what a great opportunity. I don't know if I know what I'm doing. Never did, done anything more than a few minutes long, like for a music video. Well, it turns out when I was on set, 
And I'm in uh, flying all over Asia from Hong Kong to Taiwan to China to uh, where else did we go? Singapore. We're shooting. And through 10 years of teaching sequential design, I figured like when I was on set, like, hey, I've not done it that many times, but I've taught it that many times. So I think I was able to command the set to look for things that I would be telling my students all the time to look for. And we, we, we shot for 20 days and it turned out great. And so some of that is like training your brain before the big match, if you will, the big boxing match. And I think that's very valuable. Yeah. And I love the, the pushing back and forth. When I share an idea with you, you challenge me, you ask questions for clarity, or you get stuck. And I had to really dig into my brain to find something to help you. I'd have to do it in a way that respects your intelligence and your creativity. And that's really tough. If you've ever been uh, in a room with 12 creative people, they're some of the most difficult people to talk to. Because language is not their thing. They're thinking with images, and it's like from a, from a gut. Their gut instinct is really strong. But trying to talk to somebody on a logical level when they're feeling it, that's tough. So the last benefit was what I'm doing now. I work as a strategist and as a facilitator. I try to help our clients understand their users, their customers better. I try to get eight, nine people in a room who, for the most part, want to kill each other to agree on something. And I haven't been doing this for that long, but as I'm doing it, people will come up to me like, you're great at this. You're amazing. And they give me hugs. And I was thinking, why did they say that? Because this is the whole self-awareness thing, again, where you're sitting here thinking, doesn't everybody just do this? Isn't this how everybody does it? And then you watch other people do it, and you're like, wow, no, they don't do it that well. And then I thought, you know what? I've been training this for over 10 years. I didn't know it, but working with 10, 12 creative human beings in a room, trying to get them to agree to something, and giving everybody an opportunity to speak and be heard, helping to facilitate their own creative vision and not mine, well, that's what facilitation is. So I do it in a way that is fun, that is energetic, and I try to inject humor into it. And we still have a business problem to solve. So I think that's what makes me unique in that space. So if I didn't volunteer, if I didn't go out to teach, if I didn't do all these things, imagine what I would have been like on the shoot. Imagine what I would, what kind of facilitator I would have been. I would be struggling through it just like a lot of the people who are trying to do it now for the first time. There's so many benefits. And just to be the most selfish thing in the world, it'll help you grow. But there's a lot of very non-selfish things. It's like we're trying to move the human condition forward, right? Isn't that our purpose in life? Yeah. That's, it's, that's, your your summary of it will help you grow is is really is really what I took away from it. I, I guess like I guess in the past I've always looked at mentorship as something that you do to give back to other people and to help them grow. But hearing you say that it actually makes you better at what you do is is really encouraging. And I think that's a great for anybody looking for anybody who's thinking of maybe possibly getting into mentorship. I think that's the probably the best 
sales pitch that you can have. Like it makes you better, you know, after giving back to the to the human human condition, if you will, it's that it makes you better at what you do. It makes you better as a person. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of great coaches who are okay athletes. And so if you weren't able to get to the pinnacle of your field, try teaching. Maybe you have more of a mind, an analytical mind, and you can break things down and you know how to relate and talk to people and you know how to motivate them. That's a great place too. So so you know that coaches have a very long career while athletes have a very short career. Mm-hmm. That's another way to think about it. So if you yeah. can't be Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods, and we all can't be, obviously, or Vladimir Klitschko, then go be a coach. One thing that I wanted to go back to, you were talking about it when you were talking about your dad. It's actually something that I really connected with because of some things in my own personal life is the idea of giving without strings. And I was wondering if you could just put into a paragraph or whatever, like why that's important. Because I think that giving without strings to me is more important to the person that's giving than it is to the person that's receiving. So I was wondering if you could just expand expand on your thoughts on okay. that. Okay. I, I didn't go into this earlier, but as you asked that question, I think about my dad. And for him, he's the guy who just would, would be happy getting clothes from Costco or something. And he doesn't need a lot. I mean, he's like, why do I need that new thing? This thing's not broken. There's no point. And we almost kind of have to force him to let go of something that needs to be retired, like a piece of technology. And then he'll adopt it. But his whole thing was, like I said before, he was the oldest uh, male in the family, and he had to inherit that kind of responsibility of being the father to his own brothers and sisters, that he always thought, like, you know, the things that I have, they don't have any real meaning to me. And in that way, his house was your house, his things were your things. And and it was a it was, came from I don't know if he was deliberately trying to be this generous person or it's just who he was, and he would just give. He said, you know, if you have money, I'm gonna just I'm gonna do I'm gonna give it to my cousins or I'm gonna buy a nice bottle of wine. We're all gonna drink it together. Like he told me before, the last thing he wants to do is to win the lottery. And oddly enough, my mom keeps buying lottery tickets. <laughs> okay, there's the dichotomy of the two. So he's like. If he wins the lottery, all of a sudden he has problems now because people are going to be coming to him and saying this and that, and now he has to make these decisions. So he was like, let's just chop it up and give it away. So he was not he's not here to attain material things. And so he, he would always tell me, if you're going to give somebody something, you have to understand that's no longer yours. And what they do with it is up to them. Yeah. You got the happiness from giving it to them, and that's it. And you got to learn just to let go of that. And that's not an easy concept to, to grasp, you know, like might be okay to do, but then, then you start feeling those weird feelings. Yeah. And every time I get one of those things, like this person is just taking or they're abusing what it is, you just have to make a decision. Well, don't give it to them or give it to somebody else and that's fine. When I was young, giving something to somebody outside of, you know, Christmas or birthday or whatever, giving to somebody or being generous to somebody came with with the strings of control Ooh. you know oh i've I i've given mean. you money now i get to tell you what to do 
Right. You know, or I've given you this thing, you know, uh, I'm a parent. I'm giving you a car to drive now that you're 16, but I get to tell you where to go and how to drive and, and all this. Now he's getting and, animated. You see that? <laughs> <laughs> the motion's coming out like this. Yeah. And uh, but to give you to give you an example, like a personal example from my own life, um, this is this is why this this stuck out to me and and you know and I really connected with what you were saying is um years and years ago this was probably maybe like 10 years ago or something like that i had a friend who uh was living in chicago was in a not in a good place you know needed to leave like immediately you know just not they were without going into too much detail they were in a relationship that they needed to get out of they felt it best to leave the city you know and get back to their old life and put all that stuff behind them they had a little bit of money but not enough to get them more to where they needed to go i didn't have any money you know i was college graduate just getting started not not a lot but i had a couple hundred bucks and I gave it to that person. And I said, do whatever you need to do. And I told him, I was like, there's no strings attached to this. You don't have to pay me back, which sometimes seems insane to me because I was like, hey, you know, I didn't, didn't really have that money to spend. But I gave them that money. I said, get out of where you are now, improve your life, and we're never going to talk about it again. And to this day, it's never been brought up, never mentioned it. There's times that I could have used that money back, but I gave it to them, you know? And I feel like that's an amazing piece of wisdom that you've imparted is give without strings. Mm. Well, okay. I, I got some things to add to this now. You kind of stirred some things up in my mind. I have to give some credit to my wife here to kind of help me elevate my thinking on this kind of stuff to be more enlightened. Sometimes my friends from high school or from my childhood will come come around the corner and they're kind of deadbeats. They really are. <laughs> I just don't know how else to say it. They come out, they're like, you know, hey, they they can see me now, you know, on Facebook or wherever that is. And they're like, yeah, you know, can I borrow some money from you? I was like, oh, my God. Do you really mean you're going to borrow money or you just want to take it and that's the way it's going to be? So I'd come to my wife. I'm like, you know, and this is years ago. Like my, my good friend, he needs to borrow some money. Is it okay if I loan him the money? And she's like, yeah, it's totally fine. And I was thinking, really? Is this a, one of those weird wife traps, you know, where if you actually do it, it's the Twilight over. Zone. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm like, all right. So I loan him, uh, I don't know, let's say 2000 two bucks. It's not an insignificant amount of money. But I was in a place where it didn't really matter much to me, and it probably meant everything to that person. So sure enough, they're total deadbeats. You know, once they got the check and check cleared, it was like, see you later, alligator. It's uh, the friends that pop up from time to time only when they need something. That's the clear sign. And so I was kind of bugged by it because it wasn't like, can I have it? Can I stay here? No, it was, "Can can I borrow money? And as soon as I got the money, it just never even said another word to me. And I was thinking, shoot, I feel bad. But I also feel bad, like, I got to go tell my wife, like, I don't know what's going to happen here. And, and to my surprise, again, she turned to me and said, you know, when you asked me uh, if you could do this, 
I already wrote it off as a donation to that person. I already knew your deadbeat friends are not going to pay you back. So if I already made the decision for you and you should move on, you're totally okay. And I was taken aback. I was like, really? Okay, I guess on this on this issue, I have still a lot of learning to do. So this is like my dad's philosophy. If you're going to give something, just say goodbye. Yeah. Become detached to it, and that's the way it is. And and my wife has consistently done this time and time again, without getting into uh, revealing anybody's personal information here. I've loaned people like seventeen thousand dollars before. And when it seemed like it wasn't going to come back, again, my wife would just say to me, you know what, they helped you in this area. I just look at it, that was the cost of your education. I'm like, well, no, 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 but I helped them too. I would sit there and argue it. You don't understand. It was like, we're both helping each other. She goes, no, you got to just let it go. You just have to let it go. And so this idea that money controls you and all, you know, it can mess you up or things control you. And and I, I love like little expressions like this. The more things you own, the more things own you. And so it's just idea of giving freely. But I also believe in this uh, idea of karmic equity. And I've always believed in it. Like I, I grew up uh, being somewhat religious in a Catholic family. Since kind of figuring out my own stuff, I'm like, I don't know if I believe in any of that stuff. But I, I do believe in energy and that if you put out positive energy, positive energy comes back to you. Not on a one-to-one, today, tit-for-tat, tomorrow kind of thing. It doesn't work quite like that. But if I do good for you, you do good for somebody else, and 17 moves later, maybe something totally different comes back to me. And I've been very fortunate in my life that when I go to meet people, they, they, they will say, like when, I, when I'm talking to clients or just peers, like, you know, you have this really good energy about you. I trust you. And I feel like... Whatever it is that I'm doing, they're interpreting in some weird way and I get business and my clients like me and I like them and things um, go along swimmingly. And it's this wonderful thing. And when I met my wife's uh, mom, my, my mother-in-law, she instantly welcomed me into the family while she had rejected her previous boyfriend. And I was like, why is that? Well, is it this energy, like, what is it? And I don't know how to describe it other than that. I don't want you guys to get a little mystical on this, get a little woo-woo on this. But it's just that this energy goes out, and I've been the recipient of a lot of good fortune. Doors opening when other doors were closing. Or people appearing in my life to help me through a problem, uh, somebody I didn't know before. So I'm just trying to send out as much of that as possible. And that is also another thing my dad taught me. This is the golden rule. Just put it out. Sometimes it comes back. Sometimes it doesn't, but don't worry about it. With all that being said, what is the best way? How does one go about getting a mentor? The equation is a little lopsided. There are a lot more mentees than there are mentors. So it's like one of these feeding frenzies where there's just tiny little bits of food out there, knowledge, and there's everybody kind of with ravenously looking for it. So... We kind of have to think about how can we, how can we change this formula? What can we do? Well, let, let's go through it like, like basic steps. If you see somebody that is doing something that you admire and like, there's still a good chance they've never considered being a mentor or considering themselves being of that mindset. So the best way you can do is just approach and ask. 
and be very clear about asking, don't beat around the bush, and try to think about what value you can provide to them. Because a lot of people are just asking for themselves. So it puts the person in a position where they have to just say no because they're just looking at it as a zero-sum game. If I gave you an hour of my time, where do I get that hour back? And I can't do it, so they're going to say no. An example here is one of my type professors from Art Center, Simon Johnston, brilliant uh, typographer, designer. I learned so much from him. I wanted to intern for him. But I didn't want to intern from him because I wanted to learn more. I wanted to intern for him to repay him for the knowledge he's given to me already. So when I approached him, I said, Simon, have you ever considered having an intern? Because I'd like to help you in any way that I can help. If it means running errands or doing anything, I'm more than happy to do that. I've learned so much from you. And he looked at me, he nodded a little bit, and he's like, I've never had an intern before. Let me think about it. Two weeks later, I was his intern, his first ever intern one of many to come. And it was an awesome experience. I totally screwed up on a job, by the way. Sorry, Simon, if you're listening to this. It cost him some money to do. And I was like, oh my God, I'm trying to help the man. I'm costing him money. <laughs> some, some dumb stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's one way to do it. So there he was, a person clearly positioned as someone to teach others that a lot of people looked up to, but nobody had dared to even ask. And once I asked, everybody asked. And it was great. And I did do menial things for him, like go pick something up from a printer, pick up his sandwich. It was true. This is all I wanted to do. I just wanted to help him. And from time to time, I got to ask him, so uh, if you only had one typeface in the world, I mean, what typeface would you use? Or, wow, why did you do it that way? Or how'd you do this? And we would talk about design. Yeah. And that was worth everything. This relates to uh, the episode we released on YouTube about Kyle Cooper going to shovel snow for Paul Rand. You know, you just want to be around greatness and see if what it is you can do to help them. Sometimes little pearls of wisdom come your way. Yeah. And and to this day, as now I'm a teacher, so we're peers, I suppose. I still see Simon at school and I say hello. And it, it's a great thing to be able to do that, to connect it back 20 plus years. That's one way you would do it. The other thing I want to say is this, is if you see somebody out there, it's very visible, a writer, a public speaker, chances are they're not going to be able to take you on as an intern or as a, as a mentee. But they're already your mentor today. Because what is it you hope to find out about them that you haven't already found out because they're giving the information out, either in a book, which only costs you, say, 15 bucks to buy, a workshop, a course, uh, videos on YouTube, articles that they write. It's very accessible, and that's the cheapest way you can do it. And you can do it on your own time. Because if you think about it like this, here's a way to frame this. What do you hope to gain by hanging around with your mentor? You want to know what they read, what they eat, what they do, their habits. Stock them online. You can see that already. So many people keep asking me, what books do you read? I've already published the list like four times in, in so many different places. Have you really looked or are you just kind of lazy about it? Yeah, It's out there. Right, so if you if you looked up to say Simon Sinek, type it in. Simon Sinek book recommendations, favorite books, top books to read by you know whatever it is, it's out there. But you do need to take a little bit of initiative. So let's think about it one more time, okay? If you want to learn something about somebody, look at what they look at, read what they read, and listen to what they have to say. 
And that's pretty easy because we're all living in this social media age. You know what I'm looking at because I pin it and you can find me. You know what I'm listening to because you can follow me on Spotify in terms of music or you can look at what I've been tagging on YouTube. You can look at my playlist. So there's lots of ways to get a mentor without them even knowing that they're your mentor. That's the Michael Beirut concept. You can just hijack them. They do not need to know that you're shadowing them. Just do it. And lastly, in in terms of a, a place where there's a clear structure and this is unique where it's not the first time. I mean, they have many interns. Just apply to the internship program. But do yourself this favor. Learn something about them. Go on their website. Look at when they're considering submissions, any qualifications. Because when you reach out through LinkedIn or, or you Facebook message them, it shows that you clearly don't have the material to be an intern for them because you haven't even bothered to look at the site. It shows gross negligence and laziness, in my opinion. So all of you guys that are listening to this that have sent me um, some a request for an, a work opportunity and you haven't even bothered to go through the site and it's very visible, we don't hide this kind of stuff, you're just not starting off on a good foot. I'm not saying I'm not going to consider you, but if there's an equal candidate somewhere that followed the proper procedures, I'm going to take them instead. Now, some people are going to say, well, you just told us this thing about reaching out and taking initiative. Yeah, take initiative after you do homework. If none of that information is available, yeah, call them up. Send them a personal note. But put some work into it. Don't copy and paste, I'd like to intern for you, and send it to 17 people. That's what it feels like on this end. Let's talk a little bit about um, the value exchange for a second. You have to understand that if you're going to seek a mentor, their time is infinitely more valuable than yours. So if they give you a half an hour of their time, what are you going to do to sit, to get them that half hour back? Oh, I could do these menial tasks for you. And you should be proud to do that in exchange for that half hour of knowledge in their time. So a lot of people, especially like younger folks now, I don't want to say millennials, but just younger folks that come in, they, they kind of are, they just expect things, you know, and they have that sense of entitlement. I'm here and I'm your, your mentee and here's what you need to do for me kind of thing. But they never stop to think, what am I doing for you? The reason why we take on interns here is we actually put them on real projects and they need to produce work that I can sell. And that's a critical part. I'm not here for you to explore your creative direction and find your personal voice. I can't sell that. So now you're not only costing me the desk, my time, but I'm also paying my interns and they're taking up space. I'm not going to do that. So you got to think about this, the value exchange. You can think of it as a 10 to 1 ratio. You can think of it as a 100 to 1. It's up to you. But think about that. And I'm, that's going to be a tip on how to find a mentor. Go ahead. I was going to say, I thought of two things while what we were saying. One is when you were saying... Speak to the mic, dude. If you only have 30 minutes to meet with your mentor, I thought you were going to say how to get the most out of it if you're the mentee. Yeah. But you ended up going a different direction. Well, let's talk about that then. Now we're getting into okay. like really granular stuff, and I'm happy to. Okay. So if you have 30 minutes to spend with somebody, come prepared. Ask important, big, open-ended questions. But don't be vague. <laughs> okay? If you come into the room and it's like, you know, should I eat chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Now, what do you think about clouds? Well, what do you want to know about clouds? There goes your half hour. So there is a, a balancing act. Somewhere on the left side is you're just like vapor. 
And on the right, you're just so like concrete, binary, that the answer you're getting to get back is not going to be great. You need to learn how to ask questions. It's the art of asking questions, okay? And so you might ask him, you know, when you were younger and you were facing this situation, which I heard you talk about before, what was the thing that helped you get over to this side? Because from where I'm standing, I would have chosen the other option and I can see this worked out for you. You're looking to learn from how they make decisions. So asking a yes or no kind of question, black or white, chocolate or vanilla, that's going to get you nowhere. It's just preference at that point. So it's good to ask them about decisions they've made and why they made them. Well, frame it in a way that the decisions are going to be relevant to you. For example, if you ask them a question, is, how did you go about deciding you were going to spend your first $10 million? Well, they're going to give you a great answer. You being able to apply that answer in your own life, probably low. You could say like, uh, how did you get your big break? What was a critical decision you made that has affected your life? If you go back in time, what advice would you give the younger version of you? In my situation, I'm struggling with this. Do you have any pointers on how I should be thinking about this? Those are the kind of questions you would ask. But I'm supposing that if you're a fresh young person and you're a mentee, you might not even have the skills to say it that way. So keep listening to the show. That's what we talk about all the time. So two things I want to talk about maybe before wrapping up is if you want real life interaction, like the books and the videos and all those kinds of things are not enough. Well, here's some some ways you can do it. Go to an event where they're speaking. Uh, Maybe there is a portfolio review or a workshop. You can get feedback then. And those times people are very generous because they've already agreed to be there on campus or wherever, open studio. So go pay the 45 bucks to go see them and put your work in front of them and give them permission to rip you apart. That's a critical thing because people are not going to automatically assume you want them to be super brutal and honest. So you'll waste 15 minutes of doing pleasantries. And that's valuable time for you. Go to a panel discussion. This happens all the time. When you're part of organizations, they invite you to come to a panel discussion. Like I'm on the Emmys title design. Uh, I'm not on the peer group anymore, but I'm a, a member of the Emmys. And they send you these things all the time. Uh, go meet the creators of Silicon Valley. Here's the head writer, the showrunner, the key actors in the show. That's great to be able to hear them talk and react to other questions. And if you have the guts, you can ask the question yourself. But let's put this all together. I'm going to speak from personal experience. Now, in my life, I've had a handful of people that have reached out to me and have been very effective of hitting certain triggers in my body and my brain that have made me want to invite them into the kingdom, if you will. And what they have done is they have put themselves out there to give openly without strings attached. One of which was Ben Burns. Ben Burns, who's a digital director here now, started off by sending me a message on Facebook. He friended me. I friend lots of people on Facebook. And he said to me in a very personal note, I've grown so much by watching your videos. I can't thank you enough for the kinds of things you've shared with me. It's helped me a lot in my personal and professional practice. What can I do for you? I want to help you. I don't know what I have to offer you, but I'd like to help you. That got a response from me. I called them like in 10 minutes. And somebody else did a similar thing. 
We're talking about Jacob Campbell now, who reached out to me, who said, thank you, I'm going to send you a check for 10%. And now we have a relationship with Jacob. So if we're talking about this karmic equity, now whether or not it's a ploy or not, hopefully it's not, they offered to do something, to be of service to someone else, to give freely without strings attached. In Jacob's case, he's like, you know what? I've been watching your show. I think there's some things that you can do, if I may be so bold, to optimize it to get you more viewers. I think your show's underrated and it should get more subscribers and viewers. Can I help you? So I'm thinking, yeah, you can help me, but okay, how much is it going to cost me? What do you want from me? Right? Naturally, I'm in that kind of defensive position. I don't say that, but then he says, I just want to do it for you because it's valuable to me. I want to help you. I will do it for free. So whatever barriers I might have had at that point in time, they're going to get dropped. So now I'm coaching Jacob. Now, you guys, my, my docket's kind of full right now. So if you try that ploy on me, now I know you just listen to the podcast and you're trying it. It's not sincere. But I'm saying you could apply this to people in your life that you genuinely want to give something to and see what they say. So we're going to end it on that note, you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I think this is the third one that we've done after an episode with a guest. And I'm really enjoying this personally because Stuart's asking me some questions, making me think it also gives us an opportunity to clarify certain ideas or to dive deeper into things that I wish I had said when we were live. So for for myself, this is Chris Doe. I'm Stuart Schuster. And I'm Aaron. The Future is hosted by me, Chris Doe. The show is edited by Stuart Schuster. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn, who composed our theme song. To subscribe to The Future Podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. Make sure you rate and review our episodes. Don't miss out on upcoming events, live streams, workshops, and announcements by going to thefuture.com and sign up for the newsletter link at the bottom. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at the future is here. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening.